Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Alfred Hitchcock sat behind a sleek mahogany desk, poring over the script of his latest project, The Birds. It was a chilly winter day in 1962. Not that chilly or winter meant much of anything in Los Angeles. He was midway through the casting process for what would be his biggest and most anticipated film yet. After weeks of casting calls, auditions and screen tests, Hitchcock was hoping he'd finally found his leading lady. He just wanted her to meet his three most trusted casting agents before signing her. Thinking hard, Hitchcock rose and paced his small but stately office, tucked away on Universal Studios' backlot. His three Sealyham Terriers, Jeffrey, Stanley and Sarah, played at his feet. They barked and pawed at his ankles until he finally stooped down to pet them. A squirrely assistant stuck his head through the door, reminding Hitchcock that it was time for his meeting. Hitchcock glanced at the clock, surprised, and gathered his notes. Hitchcock strode down the hallway towards the conference room, Jeffrey, Stanley, and Sarah on his heels. Assistants and mail clerks smiled at the dogs as they passed. They were practically office mascots. When Hitchcock arrived at the meeting, screenwriter Evan Hunter was already seated inside the conference room, tapping his foot anxiously. He, too, was worried about casting. But before Hunter could say a word, Hitchcock announced that he'd found their star. An unknown actress by the name of Tippi Hedren. Hunter was suspicious. Could an unknown really carry a major motion picture? Did she have the range to play the comedic scenes at the start of the film and the moments of sheer terror at the end? Hitchcock reassured him she just had one last test to pass. They looked down the hall. Hedron was striding towards them, bearing a shy but confident smile. As she reached the conference room, her eyes lit up. She stooped down to play with Jeffrey, Stanley and Sarah, who took a liking to her immediately. Hitchcock let out a sigh of relief. He had no further doubts. They had found the right actress. 
He reached into his pocket and fed Jeffrey, Stanley, and Sarah their favorite dog treats. Once again, his favorite casting agents helped him make the right call. Welcome to Dog Tales, a podcast original. Every week, we tell the stories of historic, heroic canines. We'll profile dogs who saved people from earthquakes, went to outer space, and even spurred the invention of Velcro. If you're looking for fun stories and a warm heart, you're barking up the right tree. I'm your host, Alastair. You can find episodes of Dog Tales and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Dog Tales for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dog Tales in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Alfred Hitchcock, the master of suspense, was also the master of five beloved dogs. They were Mr. Jenkins and Edward IX, Hitchcock's first set of canine companions. Later, he adopted Geoffrey, Stanley, and Sarah, three lovable terriers who were fixtures on the Universal backlot from 1954 to 1963. They even accompanied Hitchcock to the sets of his most famous films, including Psycho and The Birds. Dogs played pivotal roles in Alfred Hitchcock's films from the very beginning. In 1927, Hitchcock directed his first film, The Pleasure Garden, in his hometown of London. And though the story is centered around two young dancers named Patsy and Jill, Patsy's dog, Cuddles, quickly became the star. Throughout the film, the small dog accompanies Patsy to the nightclub where she worked. He barks defensively whenever scallywag suitors approach Patsy, alerting her to dangerous men. And, of course, when Patsy finds true love at the end of the film, Cuddles is the first to welcome her new beau with playful yips. Patsy even jokes, Cuddles knew all the time. Cuddles marked the beginning of a long and endearing tradition of furry companions in Hitchcock's movies. In fact, they became an important part of his unique style. Hitchcock's films were thrilling and suspenseful, yet surprisingly romantic. He blended genres seamlessly, giving his films a unique point of view. No matter how dark and terrible they were, they always landed on an optimistic note. From his first film, it was clear. The man was an indisputable genius. Although he wasn't without help. In fact, he attributes much of his success to his wife, Alma Revel. The pair married in 1926, and once Hitchcock's film career took off, they became partners in every sense of the word. Not only was Alma Hitchcock's most trusted confidant, she was a fixture on his cutting room floor. Even after the birth of their daughter Patricia in 1928, Alma would spend hours in the editing room, helping her husband whittle down footage and splice together reels, finding each film's unique rhythm. Hitchcock has always said that her guiding hand is what helped make his thrillers so compelling. 
so much so that by the mid-1930s, Hitchcock had become England's premier director. But despite their fame and good fortune, the Hitchcock family felt incomplete. Once again, Alma knew the exact remedy. An English Cocker Spaniel puppy, lovingly named Edward IX. Edward VIII may have been heir to the British throne at the time, but it was clear who was king in the Hitchcock household. The Spaniel quickly became a beloved member of the family, though nobody loved him as much as Alfred. The pair were inseparable. Hitchcock would even take his sweet dog to work, though he couldn't help but notice how lonely Edward looked while watching his master direct. It soon became clear that this little monarch could use a puppy companion. In 1935, Hitchcock was hard at work on the set of his latest project, The 39 Steps. He was overseeing the setup of the film's pivotal scene when a small, snowy white terrier came running up to him, pawing at his pant leg for attention. Hitchcock was delighted, showering the dog with affection. The terrier belonged to his leading lady, Madeline Carroll. She too believed in the benefits of bringing your dog to work. Besides, she explained, Sealyham Terriers had the perfect temperament for film sets. This, of course, piqued Hitchcock's interest. He was also drawn to the dog's soft, dark eyes and white, bushy coat. In Hitchcock's estimation, it was the most beautiful breed of dog in existence, and an ideal companion for his beloved Edward IX. Before long, Hitchcock had adopted his first Sealyham Terrier, Mr. Jenkins. And not long after that, both of Hitchcock's dogs appeared on the set of his next film, The Lady Vanishes, which premiered in 1938. Edward IX and Mr. Jenkins were not only loyal companions, they provided Hitchcock with a great deal of emotional comfort as he faced a massive inner conflict. He had been born and raised in London. His films had made him one of England's proudest sons. And yet, the British film industry had major drawbacks. The limited budgets and unpredictable weather limited what he could achieve. And as he grew as a filmmaker, his creative ideas outpaced anything he could realistically produce in the UK. In the late 1930s, Hitchcock realized he needed to leave his home and moved to a city that allowed for innovation in filmmaking. And so, after much debate, the Hitchcock family moved to Tinseltown in 1939, ready to stake their claim in the booming film industry. The 40-year-old director was excited, if a little nervous. He missed the hustle and bustle of London and the comforts of home. He was half a world away from his nearest friend. And while he wasn't exactly starting from scratch, he was new in town, and certainly had to prove himself. His dogs, on the other hand, adjusted beautifully. Hitchcock said of the move, The dogs seem to have no opinion on the matter. Grass is grass. Edward and Mr. Jenkins would serve as a great comfort to Hitchcock in the years ahead as he adjusted to life in the American film industry. At home in London, Hitchcock ran the show. But in Hollywood, the director's voice was one of many. 
Much of his day was spent dealing with demanding producers and fickle starlets, all of whom seemed to believe they were the most important person on set. Sometimes it felt like he spent so much time putting out fires and settling disputes that he barely had time to actually make the movie. He relished returning home at the end of a long day, greeted by his doting daughter, supportive wife, and lovable pets. There, he felt relaxed. Both dogs served as pleasant reminders of home, since each was a UK breed. The English Cocker Spaniel is a compact, silky breed bred for fetching birds their owners shot out of the sky while hunting. The English Cocker Spaniel originally descended from Spanish dogs, but over the centuries became distinguished as its own breed in England. Fun fact, any modern-day Spaniel is thought to descend from that same group of English dogs imported from Spain. Meanwhile, the Sealyham Terrier originated in Wales between 1850 and 1891, bred by Captain John Edwards at the Sealyham House on the western coast of Wales. Initially, the terrier was used for hunting rabbits, but their warm personalities make them ideal companions. True to his breed, Mr. Jenkins was a small dog with a loud, bellowing bark. Hitchcock believed it proved that Mr. Jenkins has a strong point of view, and often wished aloud that studio heads and film producers might learn that talent. Despite some initial culture shock, however, Hitchcock did eventually find his niche. He had set up a meeting with Tinseltown's most celebrated producer, David O. Selznick. Selznick had a way of threading drama and romance through the movies he produced, a technique he and Hitchcock shared. The men admired one another's work, and after meeting, became fast friends. Selznick made Hitchcock feel welcome in Hollywood. He took the director to lavish parties and exclusive restaurants, the kind of places that one goes to be seen. He facilitated all the right introductions and helped the director make a name for himself around town. In fact, at the onset, the pair really only disagreed on one thing. Selznick didn't like the way Hitchcock depicted murder in his films. At the time, on-screen murder was considered lowbrow entertainment. The American audience preferred pure escapism. Cinematic death was rare and happened decidedly off-screen. But that didn't stop Selznick from finding a way to collaborate with Hitchcock. At the time, Selznick was enraptured by the novel Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. It would be a psychological thriller rife with romantic tension. It fit Hitchcock's signature style perfectly. And, fortunately for Hitchcock, Selznick's attention was split between Rebecca and his current project, Gone with the Wind. Hitchcock and his team of writers were largely left to their own devices, able to shape the screenplay however they saw fit. This was the way Hitchcock liked to work. He could run the show without peering eyes giving input on his script. He could set his own schedule somewhat, which gave him the opportunity to think through his script while taking long walks with his dogs. Hitchcock loved wandering the streets of his neighborhood with Edward IX and Mr. Jenkins, mulling over the script in his mind, rearranging scenes and reworking dialogue. One day in particular, 
While meandering through the streets of Bel Air, Hitchcock found himself thinking about his lead character, Maxim. In both the novel and movie, Maxim is a deeply complex character that could be seen as untrustworthy if the filmmakers weren't careful. Hitchcock needed a way to paint his hero as ultimately good, an honest man worth rooting for. And in that moment, as he watched his two favorite companions stroll down the street in front of him, he knew exactly what he'd do. Next, the important roles dogs play in Hitchcock's classic films. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than 88 million in prizes, ranging from 50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now, back to the story. Alfred Hitchcock began filming Rebecca on September 6, 1939. In the film, Maxim, played by Laurence Olivier, had a faithful companion, a shaggy little cocker spaniel named Jasper. The dog was immediately likable and helped to soften Maxim's hard edges. Jasper also serves as a warning bell, alerting the heroine to danger and leading her to important clues. It was a small part, but Jasper was key to the emotional thrust of the story. But he wasn't the only dog on set. Hitchcock's own pets, Mr. Jenkins and Edward IX, were often seen pawling after Hitchcock or soliciting attention from the costumers. The crew loved having them around, almost as much as the dogs loved the extra attention. In fact, Hitchcock was known to give his dogs free reign of the soundstage, trusting to crew to watch them as he dealt with more pressing matters. For instance, his leading lady, Joan Fontaine, was only 21 when she started filming Rebecca. She was excited to step into the film's titular role, but worried about her lack of experience. From the moment she arrived on set, her confidence waned. She was intimidated by Laurence Olivier and wilted when he was on screen with her. Hitchcock knew Fontaine had the talent. He just needed to make her feel secure. After all, Hitchcock was a fish out of water himself and knew a little something about learning the ropes in a new setting. He began bringing Mr. Jenkins and Edward IX to her dressing room knowing they would bring her the comfort they provided him. It worked like a charm. The dogs helped Fontaine feel at home and gave Hitchcock a chance to bond with the actress. The dogs helped facilitate easy rapport that might have otherwise felt too high-pressured. And soon, it became clear that Hitchcock needed these small moments of respite as much as Fontaine did. Selznick produced masterpieces, but his methods 
were tedious. He insisted on arriving to set before any scene could be shot and tended to hang around set daily. And while he expected Hitchcock to respect his process, he wasn't keen on returning the favor. At the time, most movies in Hollywood were shot using blanket coverage. This meant that scenes were filmed again and again while the cameras captured all sorts of different angles, close-ups, wider shots, and everything in between. The pacing of the film would be decided later in the editing room. Hitchcock, however, preferred to storyboard. This meant that each and every shot was planned thoroughly in advance. This method of filming added an artistic signature to all of Hitchcock's films. It also meant that the crew spent a lot of time setting up, but very little time actually filming. Selznick, who was used to having a plethora of footage to pull from, was deeply unhappy. One day, after watching the footage collected that day, Selznick marched into Hitchcock's office to give the director a piece of his mind. But he could only march so far. Edward IX and Mr. Jenkins sat between Hitchcock and Selznick, protecting their master from his blustering producer. As the men argued, Mr. Jenkins barked furiously at Selznick and kept barking until he finally backed down. The irate producer left Hitchcock's office, warning him that he'd better know what the hell he was doing. Luckily, Hitchcock did. Rebecca premiered in April of 1940, a box office smash that won critical acclaim. It went on to win the Oscar for Best Picture, the only one of Hitchcock's films to hold that prestigious title. And in many ways, Hitchcock had his dogs to thank. Without them, who's to say whether he would have bonded with Joan Fontaine, the woman who delivered a winning performance? or being able to stand up to Selznick, who vied for creative control. It's no wonder that Mr. Jenkins and Edward IX accompanied Hitchcock to the set of his next feature. The next year, in 1941, Hitchcock began production on the film Suspicion, and he included a small role for a Seely Ham Terrier. While this dog wouldn't enjoy the same amount of screen time as Jasper had in Rebecca, he would win the heart of actor Cary Grant. Before long, Grant adopted his own Seely Ham Terrier. Hitchcock understood how important dogs could be in someone's life. He watched the way his own dogs boosted morale on set and comforted young actors when they felt out of their depth. In 1944, while filming Lifeboat, actress Tallulah Bankhead caught pneumonia but refused to quit working. As a token of his gratitude, Hitchcock gifted the actress with her very own Sealyham Terrier, which she graciously named Hitchcock. Sealyhams may have been a rare breed, but they were making their mark on Hollywood. And so was Alfred Hitchcock. By the end of the 1940s, Alfred Hitchcock had established himself as one of the most influential and sought-after directors in Hollywood. And while his work was world-renowned, Hitchcock felt that he had only just begun to challenge himself. 
He was intrigued by the darker, more sinister sides of human nature, and wanted his work to explore these themes. This led to *Strangers on a Train*, released in 1951. In the film, based on the novel by Patricia Highsmith, two strangers share a seat on a train and discover that they each have a family member they're keen to be rid of. Bruno suggests they swap murders so that neither of them will be caught. Guy believes Bruno is joking, until his bothersome wife turns up dead. While Hitchcock felt there were numerous problems with the film, there was one scene in particular he was proud of. In the film, Guy breaks into Bruno's home, hoping to warn Bruno's father of his son's affinity for murder. But as he reaches the staircase to the father's room, he comes face to face with a hulking Great Dane. Tension mounts as Guy locks eyes with the giant dog, unsure of whether it's going to attack. Slowly, Guy makes his way up the staircase, praying the dog will let him pass. The Great Dane makes a move. Guy flinches, and the dog begins to lick his hand. Guy's face floods with relief as he makes his way up the stairs. The scene is brilliant, not just because of the tension it delivers, but also because of the tension it momentarily diffuses. Hitchcock was a master of toying with his audience and loved using dogs to build suspense and then break it, so he could build it up again. But despite this noteworthy moment, Hitchcock felt the filming of *Strangers on a Train* proved too maddening to work with Warner Brothers again. He was the most in-demand director in Hollywood. Certainly, he had earned some creative license. It took two years. But Hitchcock finally found a studio that would allow him to tell the kinds of stories that interested him, without producers like David O. Selznick breathing down his neck. In 1953, he signed a contract with Paramount Studios. The deal not only promised him some long-awaited creative freedom, it also made him one of the highest-paid directors in Hollywood. Something else changed in 1953. When Alfred began showing up on the lot, neither Mr. Jenkins nor Edward the Ninth were with him. It's unknown exactly when these two loyal companions departed the Hitchcock family, but it had been over 14 years since the Hitchcocks first adopted them. The pair lived a long, full, and happy life, bringing as much joy to Hitchcock's film sets as his movies brought to fans. However, by 1953, the Hitchcocks had adopted three new white Sealyham Terriers named Jeffrey, Stanley, and Sarah. Harry Parsons, founder of the Working Sealyham Terrier Club, once said that the breed makes great companions, and the way that they bond with their owners is almost magical. This certainly seems to have been the case with Jeffrey, Stanley, and Sarah, who would prove to be Hitchcock's most iconic dogs. The four were inseparable. The dogs were known to accompany Hitchcock around town and were fixtures on the Paramount sound stages. The relationship Hitchcock shared with his terriers even became the inspiration for one of his most famous films. In a moment, a furry white terrier steals the show. 
This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. You shouldn't settle for just any old pair of leggings. You deserve something better, something designed with you in mind, like the new Inspire leggings by Kalia. Their most versatile collection yet, made for any workout. They're lightweight, buttery soft, breathable, and made with lycra adaptive fiber, which molds to your body for a barely there supportive fit. It's perfect for wherever your wellness routine takes you. Shop the Inspire Collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick's Sporting Goods. Now back to the story. Shortly after signing with Paramount in 1953, Hitchcock read a short story titled It Had to Be Murder by Cornell Woolrich. The story follows a man who believes he has witnessed a murder in a neighboring apartment by looking through his rear window. Hitchcock couldn't get the story out of his mind. He knew it had to be his next project. He just wasn't sure how. How could he make a film shot in only one typical apartment look exciting? He liked this inherent challenge, the opportunity to create what he called a purely cinematic film. But he wanted to make sure his signature was on the story. He wanted to explore a theme unique to him. Or perhaps to him and his dogs. After all, this was the first time he had full creative autonomy on a project since leaving England back in 1939. The process proved exhilarating. Hitchcock and screenwriter John Michael Hayes met daily at Hitchcock's home. Hitchcock would sprawl across his large sofa, listening as Hayes pitched him scene after scene, weaving a complex murder mystery. The script that would become Rear Window. The men would argue over lunch, imagining the apartment complex where the movie would take place. Inventing the protagonist, a wheelchair-bound photographer named L.B. Jeffries. They would plot logistics while Hitchcock's own Jeffrey, Stanley and Sarah laid at his feet, hopeful for table scraps. The dogs would follow Hitchcock as he paced around his office, spewing out ideas while Hayes typed furiously, a wizard on a typewriter. The script proved ambitious and challenging, and despite the inherent frustration, the men loved every minute of it. And yet, for all their plotting, for all the progress they'd made, Hitchcock couldn't help but feel like something was missing. Some small element that would push the story along and add another layer to the script. And so, he turned to his favorite method of brainstorming a nice long stroll with his dogs. There's no telling how long he meandered through the streets of Los Angeles before he dreamed up a scene that would soon be iconic, and a few new characters to bring it to life. Hitchcock gave the main character, Jeffries, a few more neighbors, a childless couple and their dog. Throughout the film, the couple dotes on a small white terrier who proves as energetic as he is inquisitive. Meanwhile, Jeffries, played by Jimmy Stewart, tries to piece together a murder he isn't sure actually happened. One evening, Jeffries watches as the small white terrier begins rummaging through a flower bed in the courtyard. He suspects that something is afoot, that perhaps the dog has found a vital clue. And sadly, Jeffries is right. The next time Jeffries sees the dog, it's been killed. The couple returns home to find their sweet dog murdered, 
wailing as though they've lost a child. The wife grieves her dog, crying, Which one of you did it? You don't know the meaning of the word neighbor. Neighbors care if anyone lives or dies. Then, silence settles across the courtyard as the entire building grieves alongside the couple. The pain is tangible, brought to life by a director who clearly understands the bond one has with their dog. Studies have shown the significant ways that pets affect our mental health. Some studies show that bonding with a pet can ease feelings of loneliness and that the death of a pet can be extremely difficult to process. Hitchcock himself had already lost two dogs whom he loved fiercely. And though he loved his dogs, he understood that his time with them was finite. Perhaps this film was his way of grappling with the complex relationship we have with our pets and the love we share while they're with us. Like many of Hitchcock's films, Rear Window ends on an uplifting note. The childless couple is in the courtyard training a new terrier puppy, optimistic about the little family they've built. Rear Window premiered on September 1st, 1954. Hitchcock had been nervous to see how audiences would react to the depiction of a dead dog on screen. After all, this was the same country that thought human murder was too lowbrow for the silver screen. But he breathed a sigh of relief when the film became a smash hit. Rear Window also marked the last time Hitchcock would use dogs at pivotal moments in his films. Perhaps he had decided he'd pushed the envelope enough, that after one dog died in his film, his audiences might worry too much about any dogs in future films. He decided to look for other ways to push the envelope. By the late 1950s, Alfred Hitchcock was totally, utterly bored. He had produced so many successful thrillers that he'd earned the moniker the Master of Suspense. But it was beginning to feel blasé. The drive to push himself creatively led Hitchcock to create his two most iconic films. The first was Psycho. The film pushed cinematic boundaries, challenging the norms set by the League of Decency. For one thing, he killed off his protagonist within the first few minutes of the movie in a gruesome, now iconic shower scene. For another, it showed the first on-screen toilet flush. The movie was weird and daring, but Hitchcock believed in it so much that he financed the project himself. And of course, his good luck terriers were on set every step of the way. Anthony Perkins, the actor who played Norman Bates, would often recount stories of going to Hitchcock's office only to be greeted by Jeffrey, Stanley and Sarah at the door. He loved playing with the dogs throughout filming, especially on days when the set felt incredibly tense. Perkins knew Hitchcock was a great director, but Psycho was a gamble. Most of Hollywood distanced themselves from the project, believing it was too strange to succeed. And while Hitchcock disagreed, it was hard to not let the pressure get to him. Luckily, he had Jeffrey, Stanley and Sarah to keep him from cracking. The morning Psycho premiered in the US, September 8th, 1960. 
the whole town walked on eggshells around Hitchcock. Everyone was waiting on bated breath to see whether the movie would flop. Instead, the film became the biggest success of his career. Adjusted for inflation, Hitchcock spent six and a half million dollars making the film, which went on to gross $434 million at the box office. Hitchcock took home a whopping 40% of those profits. It was the last time anyone would question his taste. And in the wake of this overwhelming success, Alfred Hitchcock decided to take a little time away from the movie industry, instead spending time with his family and beloved dogs. Over the course of that summer, Hitchcock and his dogs were glued to one another. He took his terriers on long drives along the Pacific Coast Highway. The dogs enjoyed the sunshine while Hitchcock cleared his head. They also took daily walks down their usual paths. Hitchcock had retraced these steps a million times before. He remembered where he had been when so many of his genius ideas had come to him. But now, the well had seemingly run dry. Psycho would be a hard act to follow, and he was in no hurry to repeat the grueling production schedule that such an intricate film demanded. It was almost 18 months before Hitchcock finally settled on a new project. By returning to the author that had started his Hollywood career, Daphne du Maurier, he contemplated adapting her novella, The Birds. Hitchcock had read the story years before, but remembered it after reading in the paper that a swarm of seagulls were destroying a small coastal town up north. He hired a novelist out of New York named Evan Hunter to write the script. They had worked together on Hitchcock's show, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and Hitchcock had always liked the way Hunter wrote suspense. He knew Hunter was the man to bring his apocalyptic vision to life. Yet, as with any working relationship, Hitchcock and Hunter butted heads. And as always, the three terriers were close at hand, diffusing the tension. It's difficult to argue when dogs are around, after all. And after months of writing, rewriting, arguing and compromising, Hitchcock was ready to take an even bigger gamble than Psycho. In doing so, he made the boldest film of his career. Filming for The Birds began on March 5, 1962. But instead of leading with confidence, Hitchcock found himself second-guessing every aspect of the production. He felt racked by indecision and unsure of the script. Maybe Hunter had been right. Maybe there should be a mystery element to this otherwise senseless apocalypse. Hitchcock found himself taking more walks with Jeffrey Stanley and Sarah than ever. He was a known perfectionist, demanding excellence from every member of his crew and of himself. But the birds was proving far from perfect. And yet, as Hitchcock later told famous French director Francois Truffaut in a 1967 interview, the indecision seemed to spark an extra creative thing. Hitchcock began to trust this new approach, leaning into the chaos that the film evoked. He also leaned on his dogs for comfort. 
They traipsed around the set, embraced by the crew as they always had been. They even made friends with newcomer Tippi Hedren, the film's star. But unfortunately, the dogs could not be present to comfort Tippi during an extremely difficult week of filming. In the film, Tippi is attacked by an angry flock of birds that swarm her like a cyclone. It's a horrifying scene to watch, even by today's standards, largely because the birds used in the scene were real. They had initially decided to use mechanical birds in the movie, but Hitchcock changed his mind at the last minute. He wanted the horror to be tangible and had live gulls brought to the set. Tippy wasn't informed of the change until the morning of the shoot. The scene is only a minute long, but it took an entire week to shoot. Tippy was terrified, not being at all prepared for real birds to attack her. And Hitchcock had not brought either of his dogs to set that week, knowing the terriers would begin hunting the avian actors he needed on set. Tippy and Hitchcock had to weather the stress without their favorite comfort companions. It was far from easy, but in fairness to Hitchcock, it produced an iconic film. And the Terriers did make it into the film's final cut. At the very beginning of the movie, as Tippy strolls into Davidson's pet shop, she passes by Alfred Hitchcock himself, walking out of the shop with Jeffrey and Stanley. The next shot shows the interior of the pet shop, including several little dogs in cages waiting to be adopted. As the audience, we can infer that Hitchcock's quick cameo was actually the end of a rescue mission in the story, adopting two sweet dogs that had been living in cramped cages. By this point, Alfred Hitchcock was one of the most recognizable figures in the world. The entire audience would have known it was him leaving the pet shop. This cameo helped cement the director's legacy as an avid dog lover and showed a softer side of the director not often seen. It could have also been a wink to the audience, as if to say, see, I may have killed a dog in my last film, but I can rescue them too. Jeffrey and Stanley's cameo in The Birds also brought attention to their breed. Their constant presence on film sets had already spread a love for Seely Ham Terriers across Hollywood. By Hitchcock's late career, they'd become the dog of choice for movie stars like Humphrey Bogart, Betty Davis, Elizabeth Taylor, and Cary Grant. After The Birds, the Terriers had a chance to become world famous and bring joy to generations. Sadly, however, the film did not incite an increase in global Seelyham adoptions. The breed is exceptionally rare today with only 167 known Seelyham Terriers in existence. It was famously difficult to find two Seelyham Terriers to star in the 2012 biopic Hitchcock. It took animal trainer Sarah Clifford months to find a small litter of Seelyham Terriers in Palm Springs, California. Paul Keevil of the Kennel Club's Vulnerable Breeds Committee believes this is likely due to the rise of fashionable foreign dog breeds like the Shih Tzu. And 
as the Seelyham Terrier becomes more rare, fewer potential dog owners are likely to know about them, so the demand for them is unlikely to rise. Sadly, Hitchcock's favorite dog breed could one day end up like Hitchcock himself, an icon of generations past. Alfred Hitchcock made more than 50 films over his long and storied career. His willingness to take risks helped to redefine the thriller genre and push the boundaries of modern filmmaking. On film, he presented a world that was often bleak, but in reality, he enjoyed a life brimming with love, thanks to his family and his beloved dogs. They provided him with comfort in moments of stress and companionship when he most needed a friend. Dogs may have represented the best of human nature in Hitchcock's films, but in life, they brought out the best in Alfred. Thanks for listening to Dog Tales. Every dog has his day, and our day is Mondays. You can find more episodes of Dog Tales and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Dog Tales for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Dog Tales on Spotify, just open the app and type Dog Tales in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Join us next week for another good story about a good dog. Dog Tales was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Paul Marler. This episode of Dog Tales was written by Rini Thomas Rodriguez with writing assistance by Maggie Admire. I'm Alastair Murden. Hold up. 